All right, so on the, uh, the topic of hard sayings of Jesus, um, so because of the circumstances, we've called a little bit of an audible there. And so uh, I'd invite you to open up to Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Um, and as I thought through, where would we find a whole bunch of hard sayings of Jesus all clumped together? And the answer is the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm actually going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to read through the entirety of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and I'd invite you to follow along. And I'll make, make some points from time to time, but though these words are really familiar, I find myself often approaching them just in little chunks. And when was the last time that, that any of us heard the entire Sermon on the Mount all the way through from start to finish, uh, from beginning to end, as Jesus delivered it? And uh, as we go through there, there are plenty of sayings that are hard, some that are hard to understand, some that are hard because they're, they're challenging, or some that maybe we should find hard, but we've kind of explained them away in our minds. We've heard them so many times that we just, we just kind of brush over them. Uh, so with that being said, I'm going to start uh, in Matthew 5, verse 1, and uh, we'll, we'll read through bit by bit. So seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So I'll point out before we go further that the fact that Jesus is going up on a mountain and is about to deliver God's word should remind us of Moses going up on Mount Sinai to bring back God's law to the people. Um, and one, one interesting thing is Moses is going to come down in Exodus and say, thus says the Lord, God says this. Jesus is going to say, I say. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." And so the Beatitudes, right? We've, we've probably heard those time after time after time, right? But do we really view life through the lens of the Beatitudes, right? Do we really think that it would be good for us to be poor in spirit, that it would be good for us to mourn, right? I mean, things like peacemaking, I can get on board with that, right? More peace. But do I really believe that I am blessed insofar as those attitudes match my own circumstances? 
Probably not always, right? When I think of being salt and light to the world, having saltiness, shining a light, I often think of proclamation, right? Or of, of doing great things. But Jesus says that right after he talks about being poor in spirit, being meek, right? It's not the strong, the bold who inherit the earth. It's the meek, the humble who inherit the world. So what if we were known, I mean, when many people think of the church today and think of, okay, how is the church shining a light? How is the church being salty? A lot of times it's more heat than light. And some of that may not be fair, but a lot of it is. What would it look like if being salt and light was being known for being humble, being known for mourning, being known for being peacemakers, known for being poor in spirit, even when we face mistreatment? Jesus continues, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, so not the smallest letter, not a dot, not the, you think of that as the dotting of an I, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So my, uh, my day job is uh, I'm an Old Testament teacher, so one of my pet peeves is sometimes people look at the Sermon on the Mount as if Jesus is saying, yeah, we had the Old Testament, but I'm, I'm doing away with that now. Jesus is not disavowing the Old Testament, right? He explicitly says, do not think that I've come to do away with this. Everything that he says, and he's about to go into a bunch of contrasts, everything that he says has to be understood in continuity with God's word in the Old Testament. In fact, if we really wanted to open a can of worms and expand hard sayings of Jesus to last all year, we could expand it to include pretty much everything in the Old Testament because Jesus said all of that, right? Jesus is not disagreeing with God's law to Moses, Jesus is taking it to the next logical step. So when we hear, he's going to say, you have heard it said this, but I say to you this. He's not saying Old Testament, yeah, that was okay or that was inadequate. I got something better. He's saying your understanding of this is not where it needs to be. I'm the author of the law. Let me tell you what it means. Okay. So continuing in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. For truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Much ink has been spilled trying to figure out, okay, what does it mean to be liable to the council, to be liable to hell? Like, what's the difference between saying you fool or saying this, or how bad of an insult is that? 
And that's all well and good. But if we were to spend all of our time trying to figure out what is the exact consequence of each of these things, we'd kind of be missing the point. Um, <clears throat> so this is, this is the time of year as a teacher when I have, have students that you know, are trying to figure out, can I exempt a final? Where does my grade need to be? How many absences can I have? And so they'll, they'll from time to time come up and say, hey, Mr. Albers, hy hypothetically, you know, speaking for a friend, of course, what if somebody were to not turn in this assignment? Right? What would that do to their grade? Would they still have the grade they need to not have to do the final? And it, it utterly boggles me that they don't get, <laughs> they don't get the fact that that's a, a bothersome question to their teachers, right? Um, or <clears throat> sometimes I'll get, hey, you know, I know the school just announced we're not supposed to park here, but what if somebody did park there? Like, what's the worst that could happen to them? Um, and, and I catch my kids doing this too, and I, I don't know where they learn this from, but you know, hey, you need to either do this or this consequence. Oh, well, that consequence doesn't sound so bad. I'm, I'll just take the consequence, and then I have to pivot, and we have to figure out something else. We all do this, right? And the problem with doing that is, insofar as we're focused on weighing the consequences, we're not actually obeying. Even if we end up deciding, okay, it would be better for my grade if I actually did the assignment well, or it would be better if I actually did what mom and dad want me to do, that's not heartfelt obedience. That's not, that's not pleasing to the authority figure. That's not what God calls us to do. So rather than trying to figure out, okay, what is the, what is the consequence of failing to do all these different things that Jesus is going to tell us to do, I challenge all of us, myself first of all, to listen to what he says and to just sit with that, to let it convict you, right? Maybe some of the sins that he's going to list will hit harder than others, right? And we all have our different struggles. Maybe they'll bring out some guilt, right? I, I would argue that anybody who reads through any of these and thinks, oh, well, <laughs> I'm good. Jesus isn't talking about me, is missing the point, is deluding themselves, right? Um, or as a pastor I used to have would say, oh, it's not you, it's the person sitting next to you. And if you think about that for a moment, you realize that you're sitting next to somebody too. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and read through these. And so instead of trying to find the loopholes or the exceptions or the, well, did Jesus really mean I have to do that all the time? Just sit with what Jesus says and ask yourself, am I really wanting to obey this? Am I really willing to put effort into obeying this? So he continues in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said... Uh, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Did he just say that? Yeah, he did, right? Um, we had Pastor Travis Bowles a few weeks ago preach on that very passage, right? The standard that God calls his people to is holiness, is perfection. As a, he says in Leviticus, right, through Moses, you shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, right? So that's the standard, Right? And it gets better because we move on into chapter 6. Not only are we called to perfect righteousness, but then he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen. So it's not just what we do, it's also the motivations. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret." and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think I often think of this passage in terms of money, right? In terms of my bank account, in terms of how I'm spending my time. But notice that Jesus has just been talking about how we practice our righteousness in front of other people. So what if he's talking more about, do I store up the praise and the applause of men? What do we love? Do we love the applause of other people? Do we do righteous things for the good feeling that comes, right? Because it gives us a sense of purpose, because it gives us a sense of meaning, because it helps us feel like we're making a difference? Or do we do these because we love the one whose approval truly matters, right? Do we trust that God sees the things we do even when nobody else does or even when nobody else understands? Is the smile of God enough, right? Would it be enough if I knew that the only person smiling at a specific decision was God himself? The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will, be put, on, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we come back to the question, what are our eyes focused on? What do we love? And I think the easy diagnostic question that Jesus gives us here, easy to understand, hard to apply, is are we worried? How do we respond to having needs, right? Do we believe that God is actually going to take care of us? Do we believe that he is not stopped by our poor circumstances, by being poor in spirit? Or in the parallel passage in Luke, Jesus doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit. He just says blessed are the poor. Do we believe that God will take care of us? Do we believe not only that God's approval is enough, but that God's provision is enough? Jesus will go on, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of chapter 7. But he'll say our response to needing things should be to ask. Ask. 
right? God wants to say yes. God wants to provide for our needs. God is a good father, right? He's not, he's not stingy. He's not up in heaven just thinking, well, you know, I, I really just want to build the character of my people. So I'm just, I'm going to be like an insurance company and just say, no, 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 until they wear me down. No. God loves and cares for us and is on record saying that he will provide for our needs. And so there's a whole host of hard sayings um, that we've gone through. Blessed are the ones who mourn. Your righteousness has to be more than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Do not even be angry at your brother. Always speak the truth. Turn the other cheek when you are insulted. Love and forgive your enemies. Don't seek after the praise of people. Do not seek after money. Do not worry. And while it would be incredibly arrogant for any of us to claim, like, oh, yeah, I've done all those things, right? We wouldn't want to make the mistake that the rich young ruler did. Um, it would also be really foolish to conclude that, okay, well, I can't do all of that, so Jesus must not have really been serious. <clears throat> no. Jesus did not give these as divine suggestions or, hey, wouldn't it be nice if you thought about these from time to time? The standard is perfection. And while we know, we know that Christ went to a cross to take the punishment for people that fall short of that standard. We know that Christ rose because he kept that standard. He didn't do that to get us off the hook, right? He didn't do that so that we could turn around and say, oh, well, I don't have to worry about my anger. I don't have to worry about you know, not worrying. I don't have to actually give to the needy. I don't have to do any of these things because Jesus just gave me a blank check so I could live however I want to. No, there's a theme throughout this sermon of seeking and hungering for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. Do not worry about the things that you need, right? And yeah, those include physical things, but those include the spiritual things we need as well. Do not worry about righteousness because your heavenly father knows that you need it. Your heavenly father is making provision for that. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. And so we can conclude hearing all of these hard statements, being convicted that I don't always give to the needy. I don't always manage my anger the way I need to. I don't always do this, that, or the other. And God knows that. And Jesus kept that standard for me. And Jesus supplies righteousness to those who ask in faith. And so we can be like the concluding parable of his sermon. One we've probably all heard, the wise and the foolish builder. And we can build a foundation upon the righteousness that Christ has already won for us. What would it look like if we were a church and a, a people of God who were characterized by the Beatitudes, who took seriously the commands that Jesus gave and felt free to keep those because we were empowered and set free by the work of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much uh, that not only did you teach these things, but you kept them perfectly. We thank you that you know um, you know our failures. You know that none of us can stand under scrutiny um, compared to your standard, and yet you love us anyway, and you died for such as us anyway. 
Lord, we pray that where we are convicted, Lord, you would, by the power of your spirit, turn us around, bring us to repentance. Not repentance so that we might earn your applause or earn your favor, but repentance so that we might live in the freedom that you have bought for us. Uh, We thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you do. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.